Lindsay, because people keep asking, what was the music you were playing before today's show? Today's show, right now, that was Fiona Apple. Oh, it was. People keep asking. This is the first I've heard. Yeah, oh, people are always asking who the uh, um, what the music is, and I never read their emails on the air about it because I'm not too sure if we're supposed to say what we're playing beforehand due to oh, copyright situation. Oh, I see. I is see. that a new Fiona Apple? That was her newest, like from 2020. Like, okay, that came out during I remember, the pandemic. Yeah, I remember when it came out. I just had not had a chance. That to was the to that you. was the title track. Fetch the bolt cutters. Oh, that's I like that. That was very good. Live from the United States, where capitalism. Whoops, wrong one. Hey, look at this. I'm reading the wrong one. <laughs> Let's start all over. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell. And I seriously doubt there has ever been a greater fortune made from a greater crime than climate change. But that's not how we look at climate change. Far too often those on the left are either bogged down in believing Uh, science and advocating for it in arguments on social media platforms or they're busying themselves with consuming greener and consuming less but doing either as our guest today argues is an acquiescence to neoliberalism and the politics of austerity and the only real way to save the planet from destruction by the very few who control production is through a working class movement, a class struggle. And considering that the working class is the majority of the world's population right now and expanding every day, that movement is becoming increasingly possible. In a few minutes, we'll be speaking with Matthew T. Huber, author of Climate Change's Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. Matthew is professor of geography in the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. Matt is also senior uh, research associate at the Center for Environmental Policy and Administration and senior research associate at the Program for the Advancement of Research on Conflict and Collaboration. You can follow Matt on Twitter at MattHuber78. That's MattHuber78. 78. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gory. Lindsay, how have you been? Oh, I'm good. I, it was a very busy weekend with the party and all. Yeah, it was great seeing you at the uh, This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party. I thought it was really awesome that you actually knew one of the musicians who was going to be performing even though you didn't know he was going to be performing and then he ends up winning a raffle prize yeah that was really fun for him and me too (laughs) that was very cool when random things like that happen yeah my friend Donjama Gaskin uh he and I play music together um he plays with everybody so he knew Ted yeah, Ted Sirota, the uh, drummer, amazing jazz drummer who uh, booked all of the bands for us this past weekend. So thank you to Ted. What instrument does your friend play? 
He's a percussionist, uh, mostly like congas um, and all sorts of, you know. Yeah, they were fantastic. Fashion. And then what, what does he win? He wins a gift basket from Wild Folk Farm. Oh, that was the one I wanted to. I didn't enter the raffle, but if I did, I was like, that was that. I didn't even really look at what all the raffles entailed, but I was glad he won that one. <laughs> so for people who don't know, Wild Folk Farm is a farm in Maine, part of the old butterfly, uh, I think it was called the Butterfly Design Collective out in Portland, Maine. They went. They did these you know, like educational murals where they would go into schools and they would teach people the history of coal or the history of colonialism in Mesoamerica with this gigantic mural, and then they would drive drive you essentially through the mural, and you would learn about either coal or colonialism, whatever they were teaching at that time. And then they went into CBD products, which is what they're farming now in uh, outside of Portland, Maine. And now their big product is wild rice. So if you want to find out more about them, go check them out at Wild Folk farm singular.com and congratulations to your friend for winning the gift basket Lindsay please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience this week's question from hell what important personal item did you lose at the this is hell animal listener appreciation party this weekend <laughs> That's, uh, the answers are pretty good so far is that like a is that a con about the knife that I left here found <laughs> at the listener appreciation party no it has nothing to do with that but that did freak out Dan last week there's a switchblade in the uh uh, producer's booth. He couldn't figure out how to close it. That's I think it was Sebastian. Sebastian, that's but, uh, right. Sebastian couldn't figure out how to close it. He didn't know why there was a knife in there. And then all of a sudden, you show up on Saturday and you go, "Oh, hey, there's my knife." <laughs> yeah, that was me. Why do you carry a knife around? Did I you... told you I was going mushroom hunting, oh, so right. like there was a specific reason for having the knife. I never have the knife when I actually need it, though. I was because like, I leave it places like here. I was surprised that uh, Chris and Michael, who came in all the way from Sacramento, California, I'm going to be reading a letter from them in a second. As soon as they showed up, the first thing that uh, Michael says to you is, hey, so how the mushroom foraging going? That was so great that somebody came all the way from California just to ask you how your mushroom foraging is going. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was pretty crazy. I, must, I, I think uh, if anyone's ever nervous to, like, meet us on this, like, meet people from the show, like, fans of the show, like, I'm just as nervous to meet you guys. Like, I don't... Way <laughs> more weird. nervous. It's, way yeah. more nervous. Because they've heard your voice, and they haven't seen your face, and like, then they're freaking out. are you disappointed? Up. I know, exactly. <laughs> Am I going to, like, ruin the show for you by, like, what I do in person? <laughs> right. I don't know. Does my face not hook up with the face that you had in your head, and so now you'll never listen to the show again? Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support, and we do need your support now more than ever as we do not take any commercial sponsorship money, we don't take any grant money, we don't make enough profits to be a not-for-profit, and we want to pay all of the people who work on the show a living wage, which is an admirable thing to do, but it's not great for our bottom line. So please show your support for This Is Hell and our staff receiving the bare minimum of what can be considered a living wage by either 
either subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to see all the ways you can help out your friends here at This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to us at Chuck at This Is Hell.com. But we must have the an- your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner. As we do almost every week following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. And now a word from our sponsor. And as we are completely listener supported, our sponsor is you. So we got an email from a couple listeners who joined us that we were just mentioning. A couple uh, uh, listeners who joined us at the anniversary and listener appreciation party this past weekend. Chris and Michael, who came all the way from Sacramento, California, to party with us. They write, hey, Chuck, thank you so much for a great night at Carrie's Lounge celebrating This Is Hell. Everything from the art and music to meeting Mel the Cat was incredible beyond words and beyond expectations. Chris and I kept remarking on our journey back to our rental on how special the community you've surrounded yourself with is and how surreal it was to bring the show we love so much into context. As mentioned, we'll be in town until Tuesday night, so if you'd like to suggest a good and modestly priced place to grab a bite and meet up or just grab a beer, let us know. We're very grateful for you and everyone making us feel so welcome over the weekend, so thank you again, Michael and Chris. Michael and Chris, congratulations. You are the co-authors of the best email I've read since the outpouring of support for me when I was out for a couple months going through life-saving surgery. I heard from a few people at the party how it was surreal to finally attach faces to the voices they've heard on the show. This year, we had a great reaction to the art, and the music was really top-notch. Take Yokoyama's Mahjong Crib, the Pure Kane Trio with Ted Sirota, Dave Miller, and Dan Chase, uh, Trinity Star Ultra, where all of the musicians this weekend were out of this world. Like, it was unbelievable that we got such accomplished musicians to perform and talented artists to show their work upstairs during the closing party of the This Is Hell-sponsored This Is Art art show. And Michael and Chris, thank you for recognizing the community of people around the show because sometimes I'm so stuck in the day-to-day process of writing, researching, booking, and then actually doing the show, I don't take the time to step back and notice things like, hey, this is a pretty wonderful community of people around the show. So thanks for noticing because... I'm so self-absorbed, I had not. Unfortunately, Michael and Chris, I'm working uh, during your last night in town. That's tonight, unfortunately. So I hope I can join you again next year during the This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party. Or that you stay for one more day and join us for another opportunity at meeting a different part of the This Is Hell community, if you will, as they join us for our weekly meet and greet. That's really a drink and think. This Is Hell office hours, which happens every Wednesday downstairs at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Everyone who drops by and reminds me gets a free book. And we now have all of our merchandise available as well as framed prints from the beautiful humans at Detroit's Kennedy Prints that you may have heard me mention on the show in the past. We gave some away as uh, raffle prizes, but we forgot to tell people that they were for sale, too. There are many things that I did or did not do during the party this weekend that proved that I'm not that great of a hoster. 
very organized mind. That's This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday evening beginning at 6 p.m. and running until about 10 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Matt Huber on climate change and class struggle. Again, the question from hell is, what important personal item did you lose at the This Is Hell annual listener appreciation party this weekend? What important personal item did you lose at the This Is Hell annual listener appreciation party this weekend? And we are getting some fantastic responses, fantastic uh, answers from our listeners, and we'll be sharing those following our guest. We'll also have This Week in Rotten History and tell you who will be on the show later this week. The planet's on fire. So, yes, this is hell, and we better figure out what we're going to do about our burning planet. And soon, as climate change is happening a lot faster than even some of the most extreme predictions imaginable were. But to really address climate change, we got to do more than just, say, believe science and use reusable bags. Although I do both, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yet, if you want any real impact, you're going to need the power of the majority of the planet's people, the working class. And as our guest today argues, the working class will have to take over the means of production. Joining us here on This Is Hell, Matthew T. Huber is author of Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet, which was uh, one of the books, that one of the autographed books that we gave away during the raffle at our party this past weekend. So, Matt, thank you very much for donating a book for our raffle. I really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. It was, uh, by the way, this book is absolutely amazing. Everybody should be checking this out because it's a, it's a way in which that we have touched on uh, climate change as class struggle in the past a little bit, but not in depth as you do here. You write, despite much media praise about President Joe Biden's pledge to pause new leases for oil and gas on public lands, the allocation of existing leases under Biden remains similar to levels under Trump. From the start of February to the end of April, the administration approved 1,179 drilling permits on federal land, not far from the four-year high of nearly 1,400 approved over a similar three-month period at the end of Trump's term. Those figures are just for public lands. They do not cover the continued extraction of fossil fuels on private lands. So, Matt, is is the Democratic Party's record on climate change better, any better or worse than the Republicans? And if it it is, how much better? How much worse? Is, Is it better enough to make any real difference? That's a that's a tough question. That that quote refers to data in sort of the early months of the Biden administration. And um, uh, honestly, like since then, uh, the oil and gas industry's profits have just ballooned <laughs> to to um, really, you know, the highest levels in, in, a, in a little over a decade. And the coal industry is booming um, much due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So the Democratic Party is really not really proving to have the the will to sort of take on the profits of these uh, of these capitalists in these industries. Uh, to be fair, we should mention that since I wrote those uh, words, the the Biden administration was able to pass this sort of scaled down climate uh, uh, policy called the Inflation Reduction Act. But that is not at all. Um, uh, you know, confronting the power of the fossil fuel industry. In fact, there's a lot of handouts <laughs> to the fossil fuel industry in the legislation. And and the good, supposedly good climate stuff is mostly just a package of tax credits 
that are meant to incentivize the private sector to invest in green energy. Um, and so, you know, right when Biden came into power, he um, appointed, you know, centrist Democrats like John Kerry to be sort of his lead climate envoy on an international stage. Uh, his Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and John Kerry were both sort of proclaiming that this problem of climate change is a problem that the private sector is going to have to solve and no government can really solve this. And we just need to kind of, uh, you know, shift the incentives, which, to be honest, is what uh, the Democratic Party and what politicians have been saying for decades now as emissions keep going up. And as as I was saying before, fossil fuel profits uh, keep uh, ballooning in the last couple of years. So we do. Do we have a choice on that matter? Is this a bipartisan support for we must have a, a way in which that we are going to address climate change that has a market based solution? Is that a bipartisan policy? And if that is a bipartisan policy, do we have a choice? Do we have to do we have any other choice other than having the private sector try to fix climate change for us? Great question. Um I would not call it bipartisan because the Republican Party is just sort of full on rejects any policy that has the label climate on it. Although there are ways in which the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill and the CHIPS Act has sort of technological solutions sort of buried in there. But the minute something's called a climate bill, it's going to be rejected by the entire Republican Party. And it's sort of... uh, depressing history. A lot of like liberals in the Democratic Party have kind of had this idea that if we use free market policies like carbon pricing or carbon taxes or cap and trade, we can kind of win over, you know, these free market Republicans to climate policy. And there there have been maybe one or two who have come over to support those types of things. Um, one was named Bob Inglis, and he um, came out as a kind of climate believer and in the early 2010s and then was swiftly voted out by a Tea Party challenger. Um, But essentially uh, this sort of dream of bipartisanship in the, uh, of bipartisan climate policy is, is just sort of a sort of a fool's errand. Like the Republican party is never going to really sign on to any kind of thing that has the label of decarbonization or climate policy. So, um, but I, I don't think we have to accept that, um, you know, we just have to wait for the market or the private sector to solve this, because, again, that's what we've been told to accept for decades and we still aren't solving it. There was just in the Financial Times this morning a, a report about, you know, we need something like a trillion dollars of investment every um, year and we're well below that. So time and time again, we show that it's just not it's not being delivered by the private sector. So we do have a choice, you know, um, we had a choice in 2020 uh, where one candidate, at least Bernie Sanders, was actually promoting not just, you know, tweaking the incentives. He actually wanted to massively expand the role of the public sector in clean energy production. He had a plan that would have massively scaled up the role of the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is publicly federally owned uh, electricity provider that is huge and could be bigger. And and um, he also wanted to empower what are called federal power marketing agencies to really scale up the production of all sorts of clean energy across the nation. And that's kind of when you look into history, when we face these large scale crises before, like maybe the Great Depression or World War II, you know, those are times of crisis where where the state actually had to take the reins and actually take command and control over this emergency and kind of direct investment 
in in really conscious ways that are you know informed by coordinated planning and and that's kind of the scale of intervention we need but um while it seemed like you know all the excitement around a green new deal bubbling up around 2020 was in the air basically the biden administration has kind of walked back that ambition and we're back to this kind of stalemate of thinking well let's just hope that you know market actors will freely choose in the market to to make the right choices for climate. And that includes, you know, we're really hoping a bunch of consumers are going to buy electric vehicles and install heat pumps in their homes and solar panels on their roofs. And we are hoping that capital is going to make the investments in the clean energy revolution. And we and it's a it's a it's this faith-based <laughs> kind of policy gambit, um, if you will. So can we save the this is a big the general question, but can we save the planet from climate change and save capitalism? Or is it one or the other? Do we have to choose between the two? Well, I think we have to be sober about where the left is, where sort of particularly maybe the socialist and even revolutionary left. It's not, you would say, in a particular moment of power and organization where we can actually foresee um, an imminent revolutionary overthrow of capitalism, although I'd love to see that. <laughs> um, so I think to be sober, we have to maybe admit that there there has to be options that that don't include the full-on abolition of capitalism, because we just don't have a lot of time with climate change. So, but again, when you're talking about, you know, the expansion of public investment, the expansion of public ownership over certain parts of the economy, you're not necessarily talking about uh, full-on communism, right? <laughs> you're talking, you know, we have plenty of examples around the world, you know, famously Scandinavian countries, there's like a huge portion of their economies that are publicly owned. And publicly directed by, you know, democratic uh, rule. And um, even in the United States, you know, that's, I was just speaking about um, the New Deal, which sort of massively expanded the role of public power, public electricity ownership in the economy. They didn't abolish capitalism. They, some people would say it was a really problematic reformist project to save capitalism from itself and stabilize it, which it really did. But what it also did by massively scaling up uh, public power and public publicly owned electricity is it it rapidly um, electrified the countryside. You know, in 1934, 10% of U.S. farms had electricity. By 1950, that was over 90%. But when you think about, and again, World War II, the government basically took over entire industries, directed them to produce this many planes and so forth. And and said you you don't do this for profit you do this because of this emergency and they and they took control and, and ownership over those industries and 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 so while uh, I would love sort of abolition of capitalism we have to work for that in the long term I think there are there are sort of um, reforms and expansions of public ownership that could really do a lot of the decarbonization work that we need to do right away. And you mentioned the quote unquote natural monopoly of public mm -hmm. utilities. So if, if public utilities were instead of uh, being privately owned, being profit seeking, being for profit, if they were publicly owned, uh, why would that affect how much they contribute to climate change? Would do you, why would, would you think that publicly owned public utilities would be better at fighting climate change than privately owned ones? I would say that it, there is no guarantee they would. <laughs> and we actually have a lot of examples of publicly owned utilities that are not moving fast enough um, to shift to clean energy. 
But what that does do is it just creates more uh, freedom and more flexibility on the part of these utilities to actually be responsive to democratic pressure and be responsive to more broader social goals than simply profit and making sure your investors are, um, uh, your shareholders are getting good returns, which is what a, a private investor owned utility, all it really is supposed to do is make sure its shareholders are happy. A publicly owned utility has the capacity to, to, to have broader social goals of decarbonization. It can answer to broader pressures from democratic movements and politics. And, um, and that, that fact really just gives the climate movement and other people uh, more ability to shape the electricity sector if it's if it's publicly owned but it doesn't guarantee anything it, it, it it's very clear though that you know privately owned uh investor owned utilities really um are just uh, don't have the capacity to kind of deliver these broader social goals of decarbonization um, I was just learning about this new book about PG&E. It's called California Burning. And it's just insane, like, how uh, PG&E was basically just totally negligent on basic maintenance of their transmission wires and electric infrastructure because they were so fixated on making sure their share price was up and making sure their shareholders were happy. And so that lack of maintenance uh, work and investment really led to... Um, uh, breakdowns in those wires that led to the campfire that killed so many people. And, and, and so um, these private investors have such a narrow focus and goal in their operations. It's to make profits and public ownership just gives us more flexibility to shape what kind of electric power system we want to have. Is there any evidence that they would be uh, publicly owned uh, public utilities would be any more efficient, any more effective or less at providing the services that the public demands? Would it be any less dangerous than what, as you were just talking about from the book California Burning about PG&E, would uh, publicly owned public utilities be any less dangerous to the community around them uh, than they are than the privately held ones are right now? I think they would. Um, we have plenty of examples. I know um, uh, Nebraska is is a very interesting case where the entire state is is publicly owned distribution utilities, and they just made a a pretty dramatic pledge to decarbonize um, at a at a much more rapid pace than their private competitors. Uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority, uh, which some climate activists get give a hard time because they haven't fully decarbonized. But if you actually look at their overall emissions, they have ex like really cleaned up their electricity production significantly over the last few years. Um, and they've, you know, it's not been full on renewables. They've shifted a lot uh, to nuclear power. And of course, they're, you know, a bastion of hydroelectric power. So they've been able to create uh, you know, a pretty much close to 60% clean energy grid in the Tennessee Valley. And, you know, I actually just listened to an interview with their CEO and he, you know, for what it's worth, he could be really sort of, you know, not honest in how he talks. It's all rhetoric maybe, but he was very like, you know, he was talking about our goal is, is to serve the public like that. 
that's what the Tennessee Valley Authority was set up to do. It's it's got a public mission, and so that he he says they take really seriously the, the 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 crisis of climate change, and that that's a goal they really want to put front and center of their operations, which is not something. Um, you know, I live in upstate New York. We're served by a, a utility called National Grid. It's owned by uh, it's a foreign it's a British owned company, <laughs> and the CEO, this British guy, makes about six million dollars and. And they they don't they're not going to even claim to have that kind of public mission. They just have a different. So I think there are dangers with any kind of um, any kind of, you know, uh, electricity is very complex. And I, I would argue it has to be kind of organized um, uh, pretty, you know, through a pretty centralized kind of organization. So you're going to have dangers in those types of organizations of corruption and um, and and failure to kind of deliver that public mission. But I think the dangers are much, much less when we're comparing it to the private sector. We are speaking with Matthew T. Huber, author of Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. You can follow Matt on Twitter at matthuber 78 You write, the climate movement is losing. This is a question of power. As a past guest on our show, Jane McKelvey points out to build power social movements must first engage in a power structure analysis of precisely who needs to be defeated, overcome, or persuaded to achieve success. On that front, we need to build power to take on some of the wealthiest corporations in world history. My central argument is that this particular power struggle is a class struggle over relations that underpin our social and ecological relationship with nature and the climate itself, ownership and control of production. So, uh, this is kind of a two-parter, but I think it might be just one big question. What, Matt, what do we miss in our understanding of climate change when we do not see it as part of a class struggle? How do we understand climate change differently when we do see the fight against it as a class struggle? That's great. Um, so first, uh, you know, we, we commonly think of climate change as a struggle over knowledge and the science, right? We, we we are constantly hearing that the problem we face is that too many people, particularly the fossil fuel industry itself, are denying the science of climate change. And, and indeed, uh, huge proportions of the United States population uh, does either outright denies the existence of climate change, though that's becoming impossible to ignore. But huge proportions um, basically deny the that it's human caused, right? Which I think that acknowledging the anthropogenic nature of climate change means that we actually can solve it and we have through our human, you know, societal systems. So that's really important. Um, and so this this construction of, of, of uh, struggle over the science um, is a struggle over knowledge. It's, it's, it's trying to convince bring more awareness about the science to the masses. And it's a quite kind of liberal theory of change that if people knew the truth better, then people would act. Um, so that's a little different than class struggle. Um, but what I, you know, I kind of write, wrote the book because I was even frustrated with the ways in which the left and even socialists on the left were talking about climate change as a class struggle because they would talk about it as climate change is a fundamental problem of class inequality, because if you look at carbon footprint data and analysis, you see that the richest uh, consumers in the economy, the ones that are consuming lots of steak and driving SUVs and flying around a lot, they have much higher emissions than the 
poor uh, individuals across the, the, the world. And this kind of analysis of class inequality and car sometimes it was called carbon inequality would would crunch the numbers and show that like 10% of the top 10% of societies is consumes about 50% of global emissions. But what that kind of analysis of class really just equates class with one's income and consumption practices. And so again, it's what consumers do in their what they do with their money, with their consumption. You know, are they eating steaks? Are they flying? Are they do they have yachts, private jets, all the rest? But what I wanted to do in the book is really bring this uh, crisis back to a, a more traditional socialist or Marxist understanding of class, which really centers on the production and your relationship to the means of production, which means that class is not so much about what you do with your money as much as how you generate your money. And, and that creates a much different relationship of class inequality where you have a, a real minority of society that owns um, capital or property and is able to live off the income of that capital or property. And then you have a much wider mass majority of people who only own really their labor power that they can sell for a wage on the market. And that's how they survive. And so if you look at this class of owners and particularly the class of owners that own carbon intensive forms of production, you find that that power of those of that ownership and investor class, the ones that actually profit off the extraction and sale of fossil fuels or the combustion of fossil fuels and the production of other commodities, you find that that class of owners is 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 a much more narrow set of capitalists that we actually need to target and take on their power to actually solve the problem. Uh, and the problem is this kind of carbon footprint ideology just erases those owners from the analysis completely. So every time you uh, engage in something that that is calculated as a carbon footprint, say you're driving your car, you know, you are emitting those emissions, but you you bought that gasoline from a private company, a capitalist company that's actually making profit off the sale of that gasoline to you. So we probably should direct some responsibility and attention to their power in this exchange relation between, you know, the consumer doing the carbon footprint stuff and the producer who, um, who, who sells you that stuff. Um, and not to mention again, um, you know, when, when we spend too much attention on how rich people spend their money and they do all this emission intensive consumption behavior, we don't look how they generate their money. And, you know, a CEO of a fossil fuel company might actually have a very low carbon footprint. He may he might take public transit. He might be a vegetarian, but that mean that does not mean he is not heavily responsible for climate change because he'll probably spend eight to 10, 12 hours of his day organizing a kind of global network of fossil fuel extraction uh, projects to make profit off of. So um and that so this this kind of carbon footprint analysis of inequality completely erases uh, this role that people play in the economy as owners, as investors, as profiteers. And that's kind of the, the real forces that are trying to block significant climate action. And so when we think of taking on their power, we it's really a struggle, a class struggle over how how we organize production in our society. That's what climate change to me is fundamentally about. It's 
you know, it, it's a it's a crisis that's been rooted in a couple hundred years of using fossil fuels for industrial production. It's under undergirds everything we do um, in in society. And so we actually need a revolutionary transformation of those production systems of how we produce energy, how we produce our food, how we produce transportation systems and all the rest of it. And building massive social power over those production systems is a lot different project than simply, you know, changing our lifestyles or reforming our consumption behaviors. And, and that kind of class struggle over production is is how we need to direct our attention. And that's going to require real mass movement to to take on the power of the people that currently control production. But unfortunately, people have this, many people have this perspective that uh, the only real choice they have, the only real power mm -hmm. they have is consumer choice. And this idea of carbon footprint is based on the fact that there are the idea that you have a choice in making your carbon footprint larger or smaller. How much yep. of a choice do we have as citizens, as human beings, beyond being a consumer? How much choice do we have in our, when it comes to consumer choices and their impact on climate change? Well, it's important to say we do have choices in the market and capitalism is constantly telling us about this choices and, and celebrating the freedom of the choices we have in the marketplace. And it's true that we we can make meaningful decisions in our lives that 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 are connected to lesser emissions. Um, and of course, we should do those things and we should talk to our friends and family about how these decisions are embedded in larger, I would suggest talking about how they're embedded in larger power structures and, and systems of production that um, we want to change, right? Uh, the, the problem is if we, if we just think that we're going to transform society in this really rapid and revolutionary way by simply dispersed consumers making the choices to be better and, low, and, and virtuous, low-carbon consumers... I think we're fooling ourselves and 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 we need to think of this transform transformation less about reforming our individual behaviors and being more virtuous and low carbon and more about building power in a mass movement that can actually again take on the power of the people that really control these systems of production which is the the, the systems we actually need to to transform. And so um I think, you know, again those conversations about our carbon footprint and about our consumption can help build those movements and build that power just by through education and through conversation. But it, but it also can, I think, give particularly the people who end up doing these like low carbon virtue things tend to be middle upper class affluent people. And, and, and it can give them a sense of like, well, I've done my part now I can sort of move on with my life. And that's not the case. I would say the best thing people can do individually there's a bunch of geese flying over me. Apologies. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> um, the best, the, the, the most important thing people can do in their individual lives to address uh, climate change or any other problem we're facing is really to organize, uh, you know, to try to organize a union or try to organize um, a socialist organization or, or, or a sunrise chapter or whatever, whatever it might be. What we need is political organization, political power. And that, that takes a lot of work and, and hard work of organizing as opposed to thinking we can just do it all in our private lives and our private decisions. 
And that's a lot easier, though. And I just want to, one more question about carbon footprint, because you write, it should be no surprise that the industrial capitalist classes, an industrial capitalist class in control of our energy system has explicitly promoted carbon footprint yeah. ideology. For example, a recent study found ExxonMobil advertisements systematically, quote, work to shift responsibility for global warming away from the fossil fuel industry and onto consumers. The article recounts the origins of the carbon footprint concept. The very notion of a personal carbon footprint was first popularized in 2004 and 2006 by the oil firm BP as part of its $100 million a year beyond advertising campaign. Does They call it beyond beyond petroleum. That's right, what be, they called it. <laughs> beyond petroleum. That's right. That's exactly right. So <laughs> so were we all just duped by BP is is does that what does that reveal to you about the powerful the power of the of the message of fossil fuel extraction firms? How powerful are they in, in determining what the debate is when it comes to fighting climate change? They they they're pretty powerful. <laughs> and and uh you know it it's just incredibly convenient for them to promote that narrative because they they I think they you can imagine, you know, we can imagine them uh you know like laughing evilly while all of us you know spend untold hours kind of arranging our lives to 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 make the right low carbon footprint choices um i was at a conference once in texas and a and a colleague was from new jersey and he had he had taken a train for like two weeks to get to this conference <laughs> and so these types of actions we spend untold time kind of trying to make these these right car- low carbon choices i think these firms are very happy that we're spending so much energy focusing on ourselves as the cause of climate breakdown. And therefore the sort of very uh, almost, you know, puritanical uh, project of kind of purifying ourselves of fossil fuels and, and, and making these virtuous low carbon decisions takes a lot of energy, takes a lot of focus. And as long as we're focusing on those decisions and moralizing about it and telling our colleagues that they're bad for doing this and that we're we're taking the attention away from them the the big fossil fuel giants like british petroleum and they're very happy to have the attention off of them and it's interesting to note they popularized the idea of a personal carbon footprint um in 2004 and and you know six years later we had the the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. So they did not get beyond petroleum. They they systematically underinvested in their drilling operations in the Gulf of Mexico, leading to a catastrophic spewing of untold, um, you know, millions of gallons of of oil into this delicate ecosystem of the Gulf of Mexico. And and you know, not to mention the the explosions just flaring all this gas. You know, these companies really. Are, are highly indifferent to the climate problem. They don't want to lower their carbon footprint. They're not trying like we are. And, and, and so we really need to pay, pay attention to that um, and, um, and understand that really the power over these system are in the hands of people that have this kind of indifference to these low, uh, to being low carbon or lowering your carbon footprint. And so that's who we need to kind of confront and, and, um, and tackle in this struggle. You also write that if the planet continues to burn, future historians will no doubt find our society puzzling. We clearly understood the gravity of climate change, 
but did nothing. Capital and its associated ideologies are blocking the changes needed. A clear mm-hmm. barrier is simply an ideology of private property. As another past guest on our show, Andreas Malm observes, a capitalist uh, property has the status of the ultimate sacred realm. This respect for property legally allows private capitalists to continue to extract fossil fuel and sell it for a profit. Do we have more respect for property than the planet? And is that what needs to be overcome, what needs to be confronted? Our respect for the planet should be far greater than it should be for property. It's, it's, it sure seems that way. I mean, we just, it's, it's just like deja vu. It's like Groundhog Day where you wake up every morning and there's just, there keep being these kind of horrific news of, I mean, Last a couple of weeks ago, we're learning of one third of Pakistan underwater. I think it was 33 million people displaced. Uh, I think a couple thousand died in the flooding. I was learning about a lot of that flooding has to do with the melting of glaciers in the in that region. And so we keep seeing this cascading climate disaster just unfolding, and yet we allow as a society again this very year of 2022, we're just allowing these companies to post record profits as if they aren't the cause (laughs) of the. So, so at a certain point, we have to sort of ask as a society, do we want to challenge the right of these uh, owners to make profits off their property, which is basically wrapped up in, in, in machinery and stuff that is focused on extracting fossil fuels out of the earth. And that might sound wild because we've been living in this kind of neoliberal era where the market's always right and we would never challenge private property rights. But of course, you look into history and there's, of course, been all there's long been massive revolutionary struggles over property rights. Right. You know, you can look at abolition as a massive revolutionary expropriation of the property rights of this of the planter class of the slave owning class and that was unlike the british case of abolition the us actually expropriated that property without compensation um you can also look throughout the history of of various kinds of anti-colonial movements um from mexico to iran to um uh, venezuela where large mass movements anti-colonial movements have risen up to actually expropriate the power and property of these same fossil fuel companies. So you you have seen um, mass expropriation of uh, oil companies and, um, you know, the classic, uh, you know, the, the real first uh, attempt at this was in Mexico, where they actually achieved this kind of full-on expropriation and, and creating a publicly owned petroleum industry in Mexico in 1938. Uh, that was tried in Iran, but it was, uh, of course, beaten back by this horrific coup organized by the CIA and the British. But the idea of expropriating the property of fossil fuel owners is actually one that history has shown has happened. And um, again, this sort of neoliberal fog of many decades, we've forgotten that there's even a historical precedent for this kind of challenge to the power of property. But it it does exist, and, and we need to kind of recover that history um, to, to learn that, you know, this we can't just keep treat, treating these property rights sacrosanct while the world continues to burn. And you point out that the professional class centers its politics not on material struggle over resources and power, but on knowledge, as you were saying earlier, or the belief 
or denial of climate change itself. Why does the professional class, why do do their uh, climate politics fixate on the science of the climate crisis and ecological collapse, not on material struggle over resources and power, but on knowledge or the belief or denial of climate change itself? Why don't they have a focus on material struggle and, for instance, how a fight against climate change could benefit the working class? Yeah, that's a great question. So I I try to define the professional class as a class of people that kind of try to marshal credentials in the labor market to carve out some kind of advantage. And this has become more pressing in in that very context of a neoliberal economy that, of course, has been characterized by widening inequality, by the evisceration of the middle class and the working class through deindustrialization. So in this kind of increasingly unequal economy, the professional class has tried to kind of survive and create advantages in that in that economy by using degrees, licenses and other professional accreditation to create a kind of semblance of middle class security and comfort amidst this highly unequal and barbaric capitalist neoliberal economy. And so because the professional class is sort of their entire class project is rooted in credentials and often education and degrees, uh, they 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 tend to subscribe to this kind of politics of of, of really of meritocracy where, you know, where you are in life has to do with how smart you are and how hard you work in school and what grades you get. And so this, this sort of politics of educational meritocracy sort of feeds into a similar politics on climate change that really, I would say, kind of looks down at the working class masses as being ignorant and not really understanding the science and, and the crisis that we're in so that uh, we need to sort of trust professional tech- technocrats to kind of come up with the solutions without these sort of ignorant masses. But it but it makes sense that because their whole class project is sort of rooted in this kind of professional focus on education and knowledge that they would then center the climate crisis around that very sort of domain. Also write that it is equally clear that the climate crisis requires a combination of public investment and central planning to rapidly phase out fossil fuels. But most governments remain committed to private capital and anarchic uh, market uh, competition delivering the energy transition. Such a commitment would have to challenge the private control over investment itself. One can find in history innumerable cases in which private capital refuses to invest in such long-term public investments Mm -hmm. because of time horizons, like the federal highway system, or lack of profitability like rural electrification. The reason Mm -hmm. climate activists have seized on the historical example of the New Deal and World War II is because these periods elevated public investment and central planning to central planks in a massive program of social restructuring. You were mentioning earlier that if any legislation has the word climate in it, you know that the Republicans will have a knee-jerk response of uh, voting it down. Central planning and public investment, two things that the right uh, would label as socialists, if not communists, and thus antithetical to what it means to Mm -hmm. be American, whatever that is. So do you see any sign that that kind of fear-mongering over using terms like Marxist when you're talking about a class. If you talk about class struggle, people say, well, that's a Marxist term or or fear-mongering over socialism or communism is losing any of its effectiveness in convincing the public, especially the working class, that central planning and public investment are necessary to rapidly phase out fossil fuels. Yeah, that's another outcome of four decades or five decades of of neoliberal ideology is we've been taught that 
even mentioning class is sort of impolite <laughs> and 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 you know crude and and orthodox. Um, but it's very it's very interesting that this same period has been characterized by the massive class victory of the rich and of capital over the rest of society. And so Warren Buffett famously said in I think 2006 that there's class warfare all right, it's happening and it's my class, the rich class that's waging it and we're winning. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it's very strange in, you know, in academia, it's been not really fashionable to talk about class struggle, class politics and, and in the wider society, if, 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 if um, certain people talk about class struggle, it's, they're, they're, they're accused of class warfare as if that's like sort of inherently problematic. <laughs> so, um, I think we need to, given the fact that there's been this massive class victory of capital, and given that we know that capital can be can actually be opposed, and there there have been historical examples of of reducing the power of capital, we need to kind of revive again this sort of deleted history of class struggle and and try to learn from previous mass movements that have been able to build institutions that that actually challenge the power of capital. Um, and I would say that you're absolutely right that, um, you know, villainizing public ownership uh, as socialism has, is always going to be a challenge to overcome. You know, that's going to be a challenge if we want to win what most civilized countries just treat, uh, take for granted, which is free and universal health care for all, uh, all people. Um, you know, we try to fight for Medicare for all or single payer health care in this country. We're accused of being communists and socialists. But of course, um, that opposition is going to always be there. The, the goal is that actually, if you can build a kind of mass politics uh, that can build sufficient power to overcome that opposition is what you want to shoot for. Um, and I would say, you know, we we tried. There was quite a, a, a sort of gambit for large scale political power in the 2020 cycle where you had a candidate, Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders, calling for um, you know, things like Medicare for all, but also he wanted to vastly expand the role of um, public uh, energy production, vastly expand the role of the Tennessee Valley Authority. I think I mentioned this before. And and so, you know, that gambit at power, really, we lost, we didn't win, right? Um, but, it, you know, it came particularly close. You know, there was a, a moment in Nevada in 2020, where it seemed like Bernie was going to be the candidate. So, the the problem was there there has not been sufficient kind of mass organization amongst the working class before that kind of gambit for presidential power took place so you know in the original new deal it really took you know really organized uh unions and 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 actually socialist militant organizers to actually build up a militant working class movement that would go on strike and really create a kind of large scale crisis that really forced FDR and the Democratic Party to actually uh, concede to a whole lot of much more radical demands that the, the labor movement was calling for. And so, you know, it usually happens that you can build this kind of mass power through organizing first, you know, organizing unions, organizing things like political parties, political institutions that sort of build that mass base and then maybe down the road, you would have a, an electoral opportunity to kind of cash in on that organization. 
Uh, Bernie was trying to kind of reverse engineer that, get the electoral victory first, and then he claimed he would be what he called the organizer in chief and would kind of try to activate the working class from the bully pulpit of the Oval Office. And whether that would be possible is a very big open question that sadly we'll never get to learn. But um, that's not how it's worked in history. So I think um, we can win a massive uh, program of public investment for the benefit of, of all of society. But we need to organize uh, in our communities, in the working class and build those institutions first before we'll have a chance to win that, I think. You mentioned three key archetype of, archetypes of uh, professional class climate politics. And one that you mentioned is the anti-system radicals who tend to understand climate change is rooted in the system of capitalism itself. These professionals include radical academics, journalists, NGO activists, and increasingly those same downwardly mobile college-educated mm-hmm. workers facing proletarianization, and now from the base of, for example, the Democratic Socialists of America. I imagine this type forms the primary leadership uh, readership mm-hmm. of this book, so it is worth mm-hmm. discussing them at length. When it comes to climate change, professional, professional class, anti-system, radical politics focuses on two core political orientations. First, they demand system change, not climate change. Yet system change politics tends to focus more on aggregate problems with capitalism as a whole. Anti-system radicalism is out of touch with the needs and aspirations of the masses of workers today. Lenin's description of socialists detached from the workers' movement applies to many self-styled eco-socialists today. The socialists kept their distance, this is Lenin, the socialists kept their distance from the worker movement and created teachings that criticized the contemporary capitalist bourgeois social system and demanded the replacement of that system with a higher socialist system. What causes this separation between professional class socialists and workers? What can be done to overcome that disconnect? Yeah, great question. I love that Lenin quote, so I'm thrilled you brought it in. (laughs) Um, So... Another thing I sort of laid out the kind of definition of the professional class as using credentials to to get this advantage in the labor market. But ultimately, that project is aimed towards attaining some semblance of middle class security or material comfort, right? This sort of middle class lifestyle. Um, and what happens one if you if you are able to attain that or if you've been raised in, in the kind of class conditions of that kind of, of, of lifestyle, say suburban, middle-class, liberal upbringing, you start to kind of see that consumption as the, the driver of, of climate breakdown. And you see your, again, you sort of start focusing on it's, it's actually me who's the cause of all these problems. And it's, it's this consumption that's, that's causing all these problems. So there tends to be a kind of, um, first of all, kind of, uh, invocation to that. Therefore, we must all consume less. We must, you know, lower our carbon footprints, and 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 learn to, you know, live better with less, live simply, so others can live, and all these kind of slogans. But that kind of, um, I would say, ideology and politics comes from the position of being materially comfortable, comfortable already, <laughs> and 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 therefore does not have the capacity to kind of speak to the wider mass of non-degree holding, uh, non-professional working class people who have really been living with less uh, for decades, again, under this neoliberal period where um, you have more and more people 
working in what are called you know precarious and low wage sectors of retail and the service industry and Amazon warehouses and and these workers are struggling to meet their basic needs they're struggling to pay their rent they're struggling to pay for healthcare and this idea that you know we need to all consume less is not going to really resonate with these wider working masses but i do think there's also like a kind of cultural sorting that's happening between you know the the folks that tend to get college edu- education and and the wider non-college educated working masses are sorting geographically they're sorting um um sort of physically and we're actually seeing now a process politically of what you know people from everyone from Thomas Piketty to the kind of political uh, advisor guru David Shore talking about a process of educational polarization where increasingly um you know affluent educated professional types are going to the kind of center left parties and unfortunately more and more uh, non-college educated working class people are are sh- shifting to the right shifting to um a kind of sort of right-wing populism that trumpism represents and so there's this dangerous kind of process where um as much as we want to be excited about um the revival of something called the democratic socialist america we we also should be concerned that in 2020 it wasn't just white um non-college educated people voting for trump it was black and brown non-college educated people shifting to the right and you're seeing that not in the, just in the us you're seeing it in europe you're seeing these 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 sort of regions and areas where industrial working class people had created this kind of powerful union uh way of life they've been destroyed and and capital has fled those regions and their their lives and communities have been eviscerated and and the left is not really organizing amongst those communities it's kind of trapped in its own little professional class bubbles on college campuses and um in in urban enclaves and and the rest of it and and so um we need to find a way to kind of reach these broader masses of people because the right is actually doing a pretty good job at reaching them so what can the working class possibly gain from a climate program there's this you yeah. know this commonly held belief that all that a climate program can offer is uh, you know losing your job or threatening the luxuries that you have that you enjoy like driving around a gas-fueled and powered car so right. uh, and you write for the working class steeped as it is in basic material deprivation we need to assert a politics of uh, more that explains how yeah. much we have to gain from a climate program so what can the working class gain from a climate program that unfortunately the professional class of climate activists is not explaining to them yeah, and I would say the professional class is a big chunk of them, particularly the more kind of centrist liberal types, have been constantly saying to solve climate change, we need carbon pricing, which ultimately says that we're going to raise the price of energy uh, through these carbon taxes. And there's been a lot of saying, oh, we'll you know, take some of the income and redistribute it to households as a dividend. But whatever, your basic message is we want to raise the price of energy. And you can see why that wouldn't really be a winning message. In fact, you saw in France where Macron tried to pass a carbon tax and you had the gilet jaune, yellow vest revolt of people against. So so this idea that we can kind of internalize the cost of carbon emissions and the prices of, of energy 
is is basically said the opposite of what I propose, which is, you know, we need to be very clear about, again, what the wider working class has to gain from decarbonization. So I, that, though, I think we actually, it, it's a very easy calculus because if you look at the sectors we need to transform to solve climate change, it is basically, you know, energy and electricity, it's food and agriculture, it's housing, it's transportation. These are the very sectors that we need to rapidly decarbonize and the very sectors that working class people depend on and have insecure access to in their everyday lives. So, you know, it's it probably difficult to kind of take public ownership over all those sectors at once. But even if we focus on electricity and we try to make our program about delivering cheaper, abundant, even free electricity for all as a human right, which, you know, um, a lot of organizers have been saying we need to start talking about electricity as a human right. When the power, when private power companies cut off the power to communities, people die, right? So um, uh, if we had a program that was very much clearly about giving people better and cheaper and more stable access to electricity, and, you know, of course, pairing that with, let's say, Medicare for all. And, and, and this is, in fact, what the Green New Deal was proposing to do was to you know pair decarbonization with things that would tackle the other crisis we're facing which is massive inequality so they wanted to pair decarbonization with something like a job guarantee that would give everyone very good living wage unionized job um as a as a sort of public works guarantee through the government it also wanted to pair it with medicare for all and you know more vacation time more free time and, and these kinds of classic social democratic demands the problem was that you know, again, like I said before, we didn't win that that sort of that Green New Deal program we lost. And therefore, because we didn't deliver these material gains to the wider working class, they were able to just, you know, the only thing they knew about the Green New Deal might be that they saw on Fox News that it's just this program to take away your hamburgers and <laughs> take away your airplane privileges. And and it was caricatured in the media and kind of toxified by the right wing press. Um, so it really creates a situation for this strategy to work. You actually need to start delivering real material gains. And we're just not in the position to do that at a federal level. I will say, you know, there's uh, the mayor of Boston recently was elected as a kind of Green New Deal candidate. And she's been experimenting with giving free public transportation to uh, particularly impoverished communities in Boston. And and I would imagine those communities really appreciate those very direct material benefits. And again, if you pair that kind of thing with a with an expansion of public transit in Boston, which is what we would need to do to decarbonize, then you start to see how these can come together. Just a couple more questions for you. You write the incessant focus on consumers and consumption as the ultimate driver of emissions necessarily leads to what I call a politics of less or what another past guest on our show, Lee Phillips, calls the austerity ecology of much environmentalism. If you believe consumers' affluence is the problem, you necessarily will advocate for things that will lead to less consumption, like a carbon tax that might make energy from fossil fuels costlier. As Phillips points out bluntly, if you really believe we consume too much, you ultimately agree with the neoliberal attack on wages and incomes over the last several decades. Indeed, this austerity politics of less appeals to the professional classes and their carbon guilt. They feel mm -hmm. excessive. 
How does believing we consume too much mean an agreement with the neoliberal attack on wages and incomes? How does believing we consume too much lead to a politics of or belief in austerity? Well, uh, to be fair, you know, I should make clear that a lot of the people who I'm talking about here, I know I've been on your show <laughs> promoting degrowth and and this kind of thing that, you know, they're they are talking about consuming less of like very, you know, wasteful and 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 some would say objectively bad forms of like private consumption, like air travel and um, uh, automobile travel and you know cheap plastic stuff and toys or whatever. <laughs> and they're they're advocating for an expansion of more what they call public abundance and um, you know an expansion of public uh, free healthcare, childcare and basic needs taken care of. And that's all, that's really important. Um, but I think ultimately they, they do subscribe to this kind of vision that what the problem is, is that the working classes in the global North have become too affluent. <laughs> and a lot of the degrowth movement draws on a uh, scholarship around this concept called the imperial mode of living, which posits that really, when the unions and the working class built this kind of class compromise with capital in the, around World War II, they were able to, to create this kind of high level of consumption amongst their members. And that, they argue, ultimately relies on kind of draining resources and, and, and labor from the global south through this kind of imperial drains of value. Um, and, you know, you might be able to make that argument in the post-war era when unions were relatively strong, Right. But since, let's say, 1980, the sort of date when Reagan comes into power and neoliberalisms come in, you know, we've seen nothing but a massive attack on unions and the power of unions. And um, and that has really, again, created a, a, a very precarious mode of living for the masses of workers in those society, those societies. And even if unions had remained powerful, is it really a left wing program to really say, well, you have won too much, right? You have won too much for your workers and your members. You need to live as degrowthers say, live better with less. Like, is that really the kind of strategy? I think a better strategy is to, is to try to protect the, the gains that workers and unions have won and try to expand them all, not just in global North, but all around the world. And, and again, that's, that's the sort of bread and butter of a socialist politics, which is always really trying to highlight the class antagonism that really we want to degrow capital. We want to degrow the rich so that the rest of us can grow and we can have massive, we can actually have that kind of public abundance that degrowthers uh, do promote. Um, but we need to kind of really heighten the antagonism and contradictions by saying that um, we really need to, you know, focus on uh, you know, the rich and the capitalist class, we need to tax them at higher levels, we need to attack their power over the means of production so that we can actually expand and grow clean energy and grow the benefits for the wider working class. And, and that, again, is a politics of more, it's a politics of gaining and winning more. And it, it just is, 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 is a much different politics than this kind of um, focus on less and reduction and degrowth that that tends to be quite popular, I would add, in academia, <laughs> where you have concentrations of these professional middle class people who tend to 
tend to only really be surrounded by consumption and middle-class consumers and, and sort of, I think, uh, think that's really what's driving the problem. So that's what needs to be scaled down. One last question for you, Matt. We have been speaking with Matthew T. Huber, author of Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. You can follow Matt on Twitter at MattHuber78. Our last question for all of our guests, as you may know, is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write... <laughs> Do workers have climate interests? Most scientists Mm. would retort that all humans have an interest in saving the planet and making it livable for future generations. Fair enough. But as is often said, climate change is an abstract problem. The weather is getting weirder and there is more and more news of disasters everywhere, but it is difficult to convince the vast majority of people that acting on climate change is necessary now. In order to overcome this, we need to articulate a more standard working class politics for climate change that appeals to more everyday material concerns. So Matt, why isn't a planet livable for future generations Mm. enough? Why must the working class or anyone for that matter have some material benefits? Yeah, I think, you know, as these disasters just keep expanding and unfolding, you know, there might be a place we're at where it just it actually is an everyday material concern to be away from floods and fires and disasters and um and uh heat waves and you know so this is becoming such a large-scale problem that i think you might we might be getting closer to a point where i think you can call climate disasters like an everyday material concern and i also want to point out that i'm quite confident that Lots of working class people do understand the science and understand that climate change is real and understand we need to do something to address it. Um, my point, though, is under under capitalism, you know, the the real struggle to survive is mediated by the market. Right. Our struggle to survive is mediated by how much money we have in our pocket and how much money it takes to pay for rent, how much money it takes to pay our utility bill to the people that send us electricity or our heating. And and that struggle to survive via the market is not just an everyday thing. It's an every hour thing. It's an every minute thing of stress and anxiety and, 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 and exhaustion that we feel trying to just reproduce these lives under this very precarious, unequal capitalist system. And so that kind of struggle to survive via the market is, I would argue, still today much more present in the lives of, of working class people, much more immediate than even these cascading disasters and obviously the future prospect of a habitable planet for our children, which you would hope would really win over everyone right away. But I think because we live on the in this capitalist system, people can only kind of deal with what's right in front of them. And you you might recall on the when the Yellow Vest movement erupted in France, they had this slogan that said, uh, politicians only care about the end of the world, but we, what we care about is the end of the month. And they're trying to really say that like, hey, we're just trying to survive to pay our rent, right? That's what we see. Um, and, and I think some more radical uh, people twisted that slogan to become uh, end of the world, end of the month, same struggle, which is really cool because it's basically 
the struggles we face at the end of the month are vers- are, are against landlords and capitalists who, who own and control these systems that we need to survive. But also the end of the world struggles are against these similar capitalists who own and control these systems that allow the planet to survive, right? And so really, we're not going to win uh, a better life for ourselves every month or a better planet unless we can actually uh, erode the power of those people who 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 control um, both the climate crisis and our everyday material struggles. And and I agree, it's really bringing those two together that can kind of try to stitch together what you could call a kind of working class interest in climate action by actually tying climate action to people's daily lived struggles for their material existence, we can start to build a wider climate consciousness. And when you mention landlords, as you point out in your book, you're not just talking about the person you pay rent to for your apartment. You're talking Mm. about the people who rent out their land to fossil fuel extraction Mm. and then do absolutely nothing but collect that rent and at the same time contribute to climate change. So I really appreciate you being on the show, Matt. Again, thank you so much for donating an autographed copy of your book, Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet for our raffle over this past weekend. Everybody should follow Matt on uh, Twitter at MattHuber78. Again, Matthew T. Huber, author of Climate Change as Class War. Thank you so much for being on our show, Matt. This is a fascinating book. Thanks so much, Chuck, for having me. It's been great. All right. Take care. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell if what you just heard from Matt Huber on climate change and class struggle made you realize that, yes, this really is hell. Show your support for This Is Hell by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell, and then you can listen to our Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m., and you will also get access to over 200 past Patreon podcasts with different guest interviews that you cannot find anywhere else online. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell, and tell us how our listeners are responding. This week's question from Hal is what important personal item did you lose at this at the This Is Hell annual listener appreciation party this weekend? So the last response was uh, from Adam A. who did not go. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, that's correct. <laughs> but they say that because they didn't have any willpower, but I'm like, I don't know. You stopped yourself from going. Sounds like a lot of willpower. <laughs> that seems like willpower. <laughs> You're contradicting yourself, Adam. <laughs> Anyways, moving on to Thomas K. Uh, what did Thomas K. lose at this year's uh, annual listener appreciation party? They lost their status as a loser. No, well, there you go. That's <laughs> right, because he actually won. Thomas K. did was one of the winners of the raffle. That's correct. Wow. Congrats, Thomas. <laughs> okay. Neil C., who I met. Now I know what Neil C. looks like, too. I know. Came in from Brooklyn. Yeah, came in from Brooklyn. Says, a kidney stone. Got a week ago. <laughs> felt good enough to come to Chicago. With heavy-duty pain meds. And felt great at the party. Must have peed it out with the beer. <laughs> wow. Neil C. forgot to mention that wow. he was on heavy pain, pain meds so when we a, were talking to him. <laughs> it, does, it does explain a, the huge smile on his face while drinking, though. And uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Neil, we cannot return that kidney stone to you at this point. <laughs> uh, Krimsky Crackers says, I lost all self-respect and there was not a lot of it. Huh. Did you look behind the bar? And the last response <laughs> on Facebook, this is a good one, uh, from Mark A. What did they lose 
what important personal item did they lose at the This Is Hell annual listener appreciation party? Mark A says, I lost my two-year-long COVID fear of sharing a J with strangers. <laughs> I don't know. I dev- I've done that many times, but I still have that fear. I think I am more afraid of people judging me for sharing the J because it's not COVIDly correct. As That's true. You know. <laughs> Mark, thank you very much. Uh, you also, uh, Mark, brought, us, brought me a couple loaves of bread from Levinson's Bakery down here on Devon Avenue. So thank you very much, Mark. It was absolutely delicious. We will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell later on this week's show. It's time for Nasty, Gnarly, Nauseous, Naughty, Nerdy, Icky, Drippy, Sticky, Goopy, Gloppy, Globby, Gory this week in Rotten History. On September 20th, 1920, 102 years ago this week, amid the tensions of Ireland's War of Independence from Great Britain, a Royal British District Inspector named Peter Burke and his police sergeant brother, William, were passing through the Irish town of Balbriggan, some 20 miles north of Dublin, when they decided to stop at a pub and have a drink with some of the locally stationed British police officers. These officers were known as black and tans for the colors of their uniforms, and they had a reputation for getting tough. In other words, black and tan as in bruising the bodies of the people they're supposed to serve and protect. The British cops got into a heated exchange with some Irish locals, as is their wont, who resented the British presence in their town and their pub. Uh, The situation escalated until two volunteers from the Irish Republican Army showed up with guns and opened fire. Peter Burke, the British inspector, was shot dead and his brother was seriously wounded. About an hour later, some 150 black and tans from a nearby British base showed up in Balbriggan and went on a riot of revenge, running through the streets, firing their guns, smashing windows, and setting houses and shops on fire. A kind reminder from Ronaldo Magaldi and all your friends here at This Is Held during this time following the death of Queen Elizabeth that the British crown has a very long history of brutality and general suckage. As the terrified locals fled into the surrounding countryside, the black and tans killed two people and beat and tortured many others while destroying four pubs, some 50 homes, and several businesses, including a factory. Two pregnant women who were forced into the countryside suffered miscarriages, and two others died of exposure, as did several sick babies. The so-called Sack of Balbriggan was just the first in what would become a series of such incidents. It made headlines around the world, provoked alarm, and heated debate in the British Parliament, and caused the British public to begin seriously questioning the legitimacy of their government's occupation of Ireland. That questioning of legitimacy has been heated now for over a hundred years, and the occupation of Northern Ireland at least still exists to this day. Now that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Lindsay, please tell us who is our next guest here on This Is Hell. Um, It's here somewhere. Here it is. Okay, this... Uh, Wednesday's guest, which is tomorrow, investigative journalist Boyce Upholt wrote the New Republic article, Will the next pandemic start with chickens? This spring, a virulent strain of bird flu ripped through U.S. farms. The public hardly noticed. That we could ignore the disease shows just how little we've learned about the origin of new viruses. Boyce won the 2019 award for investigative reporting from the James Beard Foundation. Beard Foundation? Indeed. He's working on a book about the Mississippi River. 
Who knew the James Beard Foundation was giving out awards for investigative reporting? I thought that was just be like investigative cooking. Well, it's like if, if we can't buy chickens all of a sudden, the James Beard Foundation <laughs> we'll be is out. I can't use a lot of recipes. So I they're going to be on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That makes sense. No wonder they're bankrolling it. And of course, we, as always, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorch. And I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsey Gorey for producing We Told You So. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.